Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, if you'd please grab it and open with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We are going through the book of John. We're in chapter 6, which has been called the Grand Central Station of the book of John. And one uh, early church father made the connection in John 6 to uh, the very famous psalm, maybe the most famous psalm of all, which would be what? Psalm 23. And in John chapter 6, if you've been with us, you know that Jesus just on, the, on in a grassy knoll healed uh, or fed 5,000 people. And with women and children there, the number could have been as great as 15 or 20,000 people that Jesus healed there in the grass. And then after that, what did he do? He walked across the lake. And one early church father said, here in John 6, we have another picture of how the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside still waters. So as you go through John chapter 6, know that the Apostle John is trying to help you see more and more who Jesus is. The Gospel of John doesn't try to answer so much what Jesus did, although it tells us plenty of questions about what he did, answers plenty of questions about what he did, but it's trying to show us who he is. What did he come to do? We know from the very end of the Gospel of John that he wrote these things so that you might believe and in believing have eternal life. And so we're going to look at just a few verses to today. Um, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. Would you stand with me as I read God's word for us? I'm going to read John uh, 6, beginning at verse 25. And the words on our screen may stop at verse 28, but I'm going to continue to read down through verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. And when they found him, that is Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they, the crowd, said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. For those of you who keep up with the latest health news, you'll know that in the latest uh, Tufts Nutrition Letter, there's an article about what the key ingredient to health is today. 20 years ago, it was diet and exercise. It's a new key ingredient, more important than what you eat, more important than your exercise routine. And what is that new key ingredient? Sleep. It's interesting, isn't it? Something so simple has become something that we've missed. And so you're invited 
by those who go through four years of medical school and then four years of residency and then surgical residence to give you the profound advice, go to sleep. Because if you're like me, then the blue light stays on later into the night and you find yourself waking up week after week needing more coffee, needing more things to keep you going, when the whole time what we ought to be doing is practicing what God created us to do, and that is to get a healthy night's sleep. What's interesting to me is that sleep is something that's so simple for us. And yet we manage, as sophisticated as we are, to neglect the simple things of life. And it's true of us physically. And some of you know how tired you are. Like I can see it, I can see it in your eyes right now. And there's more coffee in the back if you need it. Well, some of us are tired. We feel like we've been in my own life, there was a period of about 10 years when I felt like I was sleep-deprived after grad school. And part of that was because I may, I may have been, but other parts of it was because I had pretty poor habits of how much rest I needed. And I'm not the young man I once was. And so if you know Lauren and me, you know that when a party just gets started, we pretty much find the exit. And we head to bed early. And our, to the frustration of our children who want to stay and party late all the time. But if it's true of us physically... How much more true is this of our own practice of the spiritual disciplines spiritually? Sometimes people will say to me, you planted a church in uh, Owasso, Oklahoma. There's, a, there's like 50 churches in that town. Why would you go to Owasso, Oklahoma to plant a new church? And my answer to them is because the exhaustion quotient is so high, people need to hear the gospel again. We have fallen prey to an evangelical subculture that has told us this is what you must do. Get busy doing that. And we've tried it on for size. We've bought the latest t-shirts. We've got the bracelets. We've got the spiritual disciplines. And somehow, some way, we find ourselves spiritually sleep deprived. Amen? It's subtle. But it's true. And when the crowd finds Jesus, they, 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 Jesus goes across the water. And when he gets to Capernaum, the crowd finds him. And here they come to Jesus, and they have the chance to ask Jesus anything they want. He's right there. What would you ask Jesus if you caught up with him and you were able to ask him something very profound? And the crowd asks them, they ask them, like, Jesus, how did you get here? And it, 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 it may sound like a profound question on one hand, but Jesus lets us know that it was a, they blew it. How did you get here? Like, how did you get here so fast? We took boats. We, did, we saw you walk the other way, and now you're here. How'd you get here? They ask a logistics question. They ask a how did you question. And Jesus, you know, we know that that's not a profound question because Jesus replies and doesn't answer their question. Jesus says, amen and amen, I tell you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you were hungry and I filled your belly. And then later on, they, they reply to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, okay, we're going to try it again. Here's another question we're going to ask you. Lower your eyes to the text. Do you see it? What's the second question that they ask him? It's in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? In, in Greek, it, it literally says that exact same thing. T in Greek, what? What must we do to be doing the works? In other words, Jesus, how do we become like you? How do we do what you just did? 
How do we follow you the way that you want us to follow you? And Jesus replies, you want to do the works of God? It's very simple. Here it is. You ready? Roll up your sleeves. Get ready. Here it goes. Get your tools. Get your shovel. Here we go. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. It was shocking to the crowd because faith in Jesus is the last thing that we want to do. Just like for us physically, sleep is often the last thing we want to do. One more article on my phone. One more thing I can do before I rest. And friends, the Holy Spirit wants to say this morning through his word, believe in him whom he has sent. And so very quickly, I just want to give you four ways that we spiritually exhaust ourselves. Four very simple ways. And they all come out of this text in the context of them asking Jesus a how do I question. And Jesus wants to shift their questions from how do I to let me show you who I am. Four ways that we spiritually exhaust ourselves. Are you ready? Note takers, you may want to pen others. I'll try to make it simple enough to remember. Number one, four ways we exhaust ourselves in the spiritual life. Number one, we ask, how do I, before asking, who is he? We ask, how do I, before we ask, who is he? Book publishers know that within, um, within the realm of Christian books, which is, I think is the third, religion spirituality is the third highest book sales. And within that, that subgenre of books, how do I books, tend to sell more than who is he books. And publishers know this. And we tend to look at the gospel and look at church as how do I? How do I help my children grow up with a framework for morality? How do I make friends while I find them in the local church? How do I find a spouse? Well, maybe I'll find a like-minded person in the local church. And those are all wonderful fruits of being part of Christ's community. But you have to first ask the question, who is he? How do I asks, how do I please God? And who is he asks, how could something be so beautiful as the gospel? How do I asks, what must I do to be accepted? And who is he questions ask, what has been done for me that I might be brought in? How do I asks, what's next? Who is he asks, who's with me in the journey? How do I asks, what if I fail? And who is with me asks, what love is this that I should be picked up every time I do fail? How do I asks, what are other people saying? And who is he asks, what has he declared to be true over me? Friends, so much of your spiritual life is strengthened by moving from asking how do I to asking who is he. Not how do I grow in my relationship with God, not primarily. Who have you called me to be? And in light of who you've called me to be with my gifts and my tendencies, my personality, my proclivities, then how do I go and live that out for your glory's sake? Which is true for us, men, let me have your attention for just a second. Some of you are called by the Lord to serve as Christ's officers in the church. And as you're going to hear in a minute, we need officers of the church. 
because our elders are pulling a heavy weight together. And some of you have been called. Some of you have even been ordained as ruling elders. Would we move from asking, how do I, to asking, who has he created me to be? And therefore, and therefore, in light of who I am, where can I sign up? How therefore can I serve? Women, some of you um, know that there's a women's brunch in, in two weeks on, on February the 9th. We're going to have a brunch together. And uh, I say we, like, <laughs> you're going to have a brunch together and I've been invited. And, and at that brunch, we're going to talk about women's ministry and not, not how should we structure it, but how has he gifted you? Who has he created you to be and how might you use those gifts? Who is he? What is he up to? He's beautiful, and he's called some of you to lead in very particular ways. Would you be praying about that? Would you join the men in praying about what it means to help lead Trinity at this next stage? Number one, we ask, how do I, before we ask, who is he? Number two, you prefer doing things to being still. You prefer doing things to being still. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 64.4 says, No eye has seen or ear has heard, no one has perceived a God like you who acts on behalf of those who work hard for him. No, it says, who wait for him. If you want to spiritually exhaust yourself, you prefer doing things to being still because after you've been still and in his presence, oh, you'll get to work. But you'll get to work in a way that sustains you. You'll get to work in a way that keeps you motivated because you're empowered not by your performance but by his. Are you with me? Does that make sense? The, this, this crowd came to Jesus and immediately they saw him do this amazing miracle. They didn't see him walk across the water. The text doesn't lead us to conclude that. They found him in Capernaum and so they asked him, how'd you get here? And then they asked him, what do we need to do to be like you? And Jesus says, you gotta believe first. And for some of you, you may have grown up in the church all your life, and you need to hear again that it's about trusting him. And some of you are working so hard to maintain uh, you know, your, your moral standard, which is beautiful and right, but you're doing it in a way that the Pharisees showed us was not the correct motivation. You're doing it in order for you to remain in God's good graces. And he is saying, no, I'm, you're mine. Later in the text, it says, if you look down at the text, it says on, in verse 27, for on him God the Father has set his seal. You know that if you, if you any of you get early ballots, uh, absentee ballots for the, um, for the elections, if you get an, an absentee ballot, you know that it comes to your house, and before you mail it back in, you have to have it what? Notarized. You have to have it sealed. And what does that mean? It means you have to have it certified by somebody who sees your face, reads your license, knows that it's you, and sees you sign the paper. And then you can send it back in your absentee ballot. Jesus has been certified by the Father. He's, he, he attests to the Father. He has his seal upon you. And not only does Jesus have his seal upon him, but Ephesians 1.13, 2 Corinthians 1.22 tells us that you also have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've, you are his. And so therefore, we have the privilege of being still and hearing him. Listen. 
So number one, we ask, how do I before who is he? Number two, exhaust yourself by preferring to doing things over being still. Number three, you look around in comparison instead of looking up and out. You compare yourself. That will exhaust you. You look around in comparison instead of looking up to what your father says is true of you and then out and how you can serve the world in light of what the father says is true of you. Jesus says everyone who looks on the son and believes, who looks on the son and believes, he says later in John 6.40, which we'll see next week. Hebrews 12.2 says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's a command. Look Look, maybe a simple exercise to help you would be every time you're tempted to look at your phone, which for some of us means hundreds of times a day, every time you look at your phone, maybe you gotta put a little piece of tape up there that says look first to Christ. Just to remind you, look to him. It's a command of scripture for us to raise our gaze from comparison to the world, to look to him. What has he said is true of you? If you don't live into that better story, you will be swept away by another narrative and you will always, always find yourself exhausted. Number one, you ask, how do I? Before you ask, who is he? Number two, you prefer doing things to being still. Number three, you look around in comparison instead of looking up and looking out. Number four, this gets some of us. You isolate yourselves instead of run into community. Not every year does the Lord kind of impress upon uh, my heart a verse for our church, but this year he's impressed John 10.10 10 upon my heart that I pray is true of our church. And you know what that verse says? That the evil one comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. There are four ways that sin works. John 10, 10 alludes to some of those ways. If, if, if the evil one is going to get you, if he is going to tempt you, if he's gonna help you become exhausted, then he'll do it, number one, the first way, is through temptation. How does he isolate you? He isolates you first through temptation. He's gonna come to you and say, look what you could do. No one is ever gonna find out. You need a break. In Scripture, when, when uh, we read of somebody who is demon-possessed, um, the, the Greek word um, to be um, demon-possessed is literally to be demonized. It's, it's kind of like the English word um, um, to be fossilized. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that... Um, uh, you, you, you won't say no anymore. What it means is that you can't say no anymore. Over and over time, your temptation begins to harden into a desire, and that desire hardens into an over-desire, and it captivates you. And it's not that you can't say no, it's that you, or that you won't say no, it's that you can't. You, you don't have the ability to, that's how temptation works. It wears you down. And if you're isolated, it'll only wear you down that much more quickly. And if he can get you tempted, he moves to the second thing, which is accusation. Temptation, accusation. And the devil wants to move you from what you did to saying that what you did is who you are. Do you see how the devil is always trying to reshape your identity? 
Oh, I know that you committed adultery, but you know what the truth is? You're really an adulterer. Oh, I know that you looked at pornography this week, but you know what you really are? What you really are is a porn addict and you'll never get free from it. So just give in. Oh, I know that you struggle. I know that you struggle with your body image, but you know what? You're never going to look the way you want to look, so just do whatever you want. I know that you have a drinking problem, but you know what you really are? I'm just going to tell you, here it is. It's in your DNA. You're an alcoholic. And he moves from temptation to accusation. And he says, you're nothing but a blank. You will always be a blank. You're twisted. You're sick. That's the voice of accusation. And the, Lord, the, the devil uses temptation and accusation to further isolate you from the community. And then he moves into the step that becomes really dangerous, from temptation to accusation, and then he moves you into isolation. You ever see those pictures on the Discovery Channel or the Nature Channel when, you know, they're the, they're the lions running after the gazelles? And you know how the lions, they videotape, you know, what awful cinematography it is to watch lions take down these beautiful gazelles. But you know how they do it, right? Do they take the weakest gazelle in the bunch? No. They don't take the weakest gazelle. What do they do? They take the gazelle that is isolated from the herd every time. And then you hear the, you know, it always has a drum beat. And you hear the gazelle running like crazy, trying to outrun this lion. And the lions eventually circle up this little isolated gazelle and they take him down. Friends, Proverbs 18.1 says that he who isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Like a roaring lion. If you know me, you know how uh, reassuring that is because you notice roaring lion, cat family, therefore cats equal Satan, right? There it is. So for all you dog lovers, you can take assurance. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. But he prowls around like a roaring lion. And if he can move you from temptation to accusation to isolation, then he will move to annihilation. I'm almost done. Listen, if Satan could slit your throat in the throat of your children, he would do it. And he's trying. But he doesn't use machetes and guillotines. He uses a thousand paper cuts, and they come in helping people begin to embrace alternative stories of reality. And if you begin to believe another narrative than what Scripture tells us is true, that is how the evil one works in our families. And so therefore, dads, if you were at my Romans Bible study on Wednesday, you know that I challenged the, the men that were around the table. Tell the story of shalom in some way to your family this week. Those of you who are there, have you done it yet? You've got three days to do it. Tell the story of shalom. What does it mean that Paul says grace and peace to the church in Rome? How do we communicate the story of grace and peace to our family how the world will be remade and completely made new. All injustice will be ended and be solved and be reconciled by the Father's white hot vengeance and justice and he, you will be made whole. Satan will work to tempt you. He will work to accuse you. He will work to isolate you. He will work to annihilate you. And he will work to annihilate you. He cannot kill you himself. He'll just try to convince you to do it. He'll lead you into such dark depression that he'll say, uh, you know what, there's no way out. There's no pinprick of light possible. Don't reach out to the elders. Those guys are overwhelmed. Didn't you hear Blake in the sermon? They need help. And you, as a child of God, you say, no. 
I will not ask, how do I? I will look to him and ask, who is he? I will not prefer doing things. I will first be still and remind myself of the greater story. I will quit looking out in comparison and I will look up to hear my father's voice and I will look out to see how I can serve. And I refuse to isolate myself, but I will run to community. I will come to worship every Sunday. I will go to community group every time they have it. I will strive to be involved in ladies' Bible study or a men's Bible study. This is not because we're trying to program the church. It's because we are trying to give you huge open doors, ways of escape to bring you into community. That's the purpose of every gospel-centered event we try to create for you. So that you won't be tempted to stay in isolation, but you'll run to him. And you'll be able to say, as Jesus was trying to teach the crowd before his disciples, friends, lay your deadly doings down, as John Bunyan once prayed, down at Jesus' feet, and trust in him and him alone, gloriously complete. What must we do, we do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you believe that? Will you come to the table this morning empty-handed? And will you ask the question, Lord, who are you? Would you show me your power? Would you show me your grace? Would you show me who you are? And in light of that truth, then we can move out to ask, now how do I serve him with the unique gifts that he has given to me? He's opened the way for us. Believe in him whom he has sent. If you're in the room, friends, and you've come to church all your life perhaps, or you've never been at church and this is your first time, do you know that the only way to have the freedom that you really want is to trust in him? Do you? When you come to the supper, use the prayers in your bulletin to pray those prayers and come as a new creation in Christ. Believe in him. Today is the day of salvation for you. And you will find yourself mesmerized and see the beauty and the believability of the gospel in ways that you never imagined could be true. Believe in him whom he has sent. Would you do that now? And let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to stand before you and ask the question, who are you that you would die for me? Who are you that you've created me the way you have to serve you? Help us to lay our deadly doings down, Father, and render your son whom you have sent to save us from sin and death. Work in our hearts, punch a hole in our chests to believe the truth of your loving, gracious, and unchanging good news that there's freedom and rest for all of us here in Christ. And just as you call us to sleep physically, Lord, help us also to be children who know who we are before you and we are able to rest in worship, rest in your favor. And in light of that rest, then be used for your glory in the unique ways in which you've created us. Father, may that be true of each of us. May that be true of me. May that be true of my children. May that be, be true of our elders and their families. And every one of us, we pray and beg in Jesus' name. Amen.